Hello and welcome back to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose. Today we have part two of our conversation with Dr. Maple Go. In this episode, we pick up our conversation where we left off in part one, talking about recognising and addressing racism in the workplace. We go on to talk about the need for diversity in medicine, how to listen to our colleagues, equity in healthcare, and how she thinks these issues will change during her career in medicine. I've experienced a um, a comment which to me was obvious and which was therefore easy for me to do something about um, when um, a patient has um, said um, that they were fed up of being treated by immigrants and to which I responded and said, well, I'm an immigrant. And they said, well, you don't count, um, which was a fairly obvious comment that they don't see me as an immigrant, even though I've traveled about as far as you can before you start going back on yourself. So I couldn't be further from my home. Um, but the inference was that um, a white Englishman is, is not really an immigrant in New Zealand. And so that was quite an easy thing for me to, to push back on because it, it was it, I mean, it was so blatant I couldn't miss it. Um, but I'm aware that I, 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 I can miss things in, in everyday life uh, very easily um, uh, and, and I'm aware that, that, that things can go over my head for, for all manner of different things um, in, all, in all sorts of situations um, and, and yet I would hate it for the, the sort of microaggressions that you talk about or, or things where a colleague is being um, uh, experiencing a, a racist or a race-based criticism or, or racist attitude and not being able to pick up on it. Um, so how, how can we make sure that we don't miss these things and then what can we do about it? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the root of why dealing with microaggressive racism and sexism in the workplace is so exhausting because we're constantly second-guessing ourselves and we're constantly asking ourselves whether it's it's a battle worth picking um, because it's not every fight you want to go to war, war with um, and so certainly you do have to pick your battles. And I think part of being able to identify microaggressions is, is through having conversations with people of color because you won't be able to readily identify these situations unless you have these conversations and open discourses about what's involved in microaggressions. Because to a white friend or Pakeha counterpart, asking me where I'm really from might seem very benign. The only reason it's not benign and the only reason I know it has some malignant intention behind it is because I get asked it four times a day. I get asked it every single day. I get asked it back to back on every single rotation, no matter what specialty I'm doing. And the insinuation behind it is, but you don't really belong here. And when are you planning on going home? Because this isn't home for you. And so on that surface, it sure seems really benign. And I think it's only through having these conversations that you can uncover what this really means. So I don't have a perfect recipe of how people can find out exactly every single manifestation microaggressions can occur, but it's just about 
having colleagues and friends around you who are people of color who you can have these conversations with and who when they have the time and the emotional energy can indulge in educating each other Um, because certainly we're not always in a position where we feel like educating people and it's certainly not our role to have to do that all the time but I do understand that this is a difficult position to be in and I think once you get past that stage of of being able to identify these microaggressions, which I think is always going to be an ongoing journey. The second part is learning how to step in. What I find the most important is having Pakeha or male counterparts who are my allies. And I'm not talking about performative allyship. It's not just about sending an aggressive tweet out there telling New Zealand to stop being racist. It's not about just changing your profile picture to a black crying Kiwi when a massacre happens. You know, all these things, while at the same time can make us feel very good about ourselves, are largely performative. It's about stepping in when these conversations happen. So what I found most helpful is when a patient immediately assumes I am the nurse. So this is, it might be racially based, it might be like gender based, it's hard to know. But my consultant will step in and say, excuse me, she's she's not a nurse. She's actually a qualified doctor. In fact, she is almost going to be a senior doctor at the stage. And so having somebody like that step in and back you is really important. So I appreciate what you're doing. You're cl- clearly making waves and correcting people and making them reevaluate what they're saying and who they define as a migrant. And I think that's important. That's what more people need to be doing. Yeah, I think it is difficult, as I say, in that in the gray area, in the heat of the moment where you then doubt yourself as to was that, wasn't that. And I, so I guess one one way I might approach that myself might be if you weren't sure and you let something slide in, in, in that setting, but then to catch up with you afterwards and, and say it, it would help to hear your feedback from that and then that would help tune my radar into to, to, to that sort of thing. And I think that's something that has, has a role for, uh, we talked on your podcast about the training in urgent care and how we all have to have a supervisor it's something we're developing in the college actually we're trying to strengthen supervision and it's the sort of thing that we would hope a supervisor and senior colleague would be able to um, to do and address in that in that way i guess the from your point of view you would you're wanting support from your colleagues and your seniors when it happens do you ever think though that it will change that it will move the needle and change public opinion? Or is this going to be your 40 years of medicine as an experience? What what do you feel going forwards is, is the future for that? So I do think public opinion is changing. And I think over time, there are studies showing that we are becoming more, I suppose, liberal and liberal in the sense that we are becoming more racially progressive. But I think the trap that you can fall into is believing that you are so woke and so progressive that there is no more work to do. Um, and I think sometimes that might be the trap that New Zealand has fallen into. And you can see that when we had that shock, when the Christchurch massacre happened. I can tell you from my experience and from my friends who are people of color in Christchurch that that was certainly no surprise to them whatsoever. It's always been known in our colored communities that 
Christchurch is actually quite a racist place. Um, my friends, for example, have been declined from jobs because they were told they didn't want Asians working at that place. And so that's as pretty much as overt as racial discrimination gets. And yet the, the surprise that was met um, when the massacre happened was still, I suppose, shocking to a lot of us as people of color. So I guess to answer that question is that we have come a long way, but I think we've got a long way still to go. And I do think there is quite a lot of mahi and a lot of work being done to progress the, the overall population. So I do believe, however naively and however optimistically, that that people will see these ways and people will will change. And I think within medicine, we have a lot of pioneers in in gender-based discussions and in race-based discussions and in pride-based discussions for our rainbow communities as well, um, going forwards to create more diversity and to create better representation and visibility in these groups. Um, in particular, I think RACS is trying affirmative action more specifically, and I do think that more colleges are trying for affirmative action to say we want X number of Māori doctors admitted into this training college every year. And I think those are some positive moves. I really think if we keep going in this trajectory, hopefully we will meet the proportions of doctors in medicine who are Māori that correlates with the proportion of Māori in our population. Same with our Pacifica populations. We need the same proportions of Pacifica doctors or more as we do as our Pacifica populations in, in the general groups. So... I think we've got a way to go, but I do think we are getting there. So moving on from the race um, discussion here, you've mentioned um, diversity in general. We've, we've, you've mentioned pride. You've mentioned um, a number of things, and that, and that comes under the um, – or health equity covers a, a, a lot of that, uh, as in you, you can choose which group you want to talk about. But – inequitable health is um, is definitely um, present across a number of different areas. One of the joys of urgent care is that we see all um, ages, all conditions, and hopefully if funding can improve in various ways, we, we can have ac people can have access to health care through us. Um, so we're one area that can help address health equity going forwards. Um, from Growing up um, overseas, you mentioned um, your, your your background and and was some was health equity something you were aware of at that young age before you moved to New Zealand, um, and and do you think that had a part in your choosing to do medicine in mm. any way? Mm. I think um, when I moved to New Zealand, I moved here when I was thirteen, so certainly having a grasp of the the political and the health systems would have been difficult at that age. But on reflection, I think I lived through so much race based and gender based oppression that it actually was second nature to me. So, for example, as somebody who's Chinese, I wasn't allowed to own property in Brunei. Um, we weren't allowed to own companies. We weren't allowed to work for the government in higher positions. Uh, and so those were many of the things that were race-based that just came very naturally to our government and came very naturally to our system. So when I came here, I suppose when I'm thinking about inequities in the systems, 
I think about it across a spectrum of of governmental policies, not just in terms of healthcare, but it affected me in terms of housing. It affected me in terms of employment as well. Um, I I do wonder if health based inequities are probably prominent back home because racism is uh, is overt back there and oppression is is a different league entirely um but certainly you see a lot of common threads and i think some of the most important healthcare inequities that we see here might not be towards chinese or the or towards the asian population but we see it a lot throughout our maori and our pacifica populations who have for example a 10-year lower lifespan than our Pākehā groups. When I see health inequities in Asian populations, I see it manifest in forms of under-delivering healthcare in the hospital. So one example of this is when we're in the hospital, I can see how consultants will roll their eyes or perhaps express a disinterest in seeing their Chinese patients who don't speak English. There's a lot of frustration around getting an interpreter. Um, there's a lot of dissatisfaction around treating people who don't speak English. It's such a major inconvenience to them. Um, and I, I see it in the way that we deliver poorer healthcare secondary to the language barrier. For example, we're very quick to forego interpreters. We like to do this charades and miming thing ex- ex- as if you can explain fruzamide through, through hand signals. And it's just not possible. Um, and it's it's really interesting how quickly we are to forego these interpreters, even though language and communication is such a significant part of medicine in itself. And so I see that in one aspect of medicine. The other aspect of poorer healthcare, I suppose, is in the interactions of doctors to doctors and, and thinking that other doctors can form interpreters when they're, they're not really that well qualified in that language and I get that assumption a lot as well in doctors who assume that I can speak um, Mandarin and Cantonese and Hokkien which I can but certainly not to a proficiency where I can translate an angiogram and so in those senses we are still delivering poorer healthcare to people who are non-English speaking that goes for Asian groups that goes for Maori groups that goes for Pacifica groups and so I don't know if I've answered your question but I do think health inequities are common threads all throughout and surely probably my inspirations have stemmed from from what I've seen as a child and what was so normal to me as a child and coming here and realizing that it's just not good enough. Yeah, I think my thoughts were going around that, that you mentioned diversity of the workplace is important because it's important for patients to see themselves represented and, and not necessarily um you know that you have to see a doctor every time who is the same as you i mean i'm i i i believe that we should all be able to treat everybody equally um but the across the whole system or across the whole hospital across the whole clinic or whatever there should be that diversity of that represents the community in which you're working um but then the uh, other benefit as as well of having a, a variety of experiences is that and i sort of alluded to this when i mentioned how sometimes it can be difficult to notice something um, if you haven't experienced it yourself uh, when it comes to 
um, hearing racist comments or, or seeing those microaggressions, um, people with a different background can um, lead the change to, to change the system because uh, you've got your experiences and, and so having a diverse workforce is good for the patients in terms of giving them somebody to look up to and somebody to, um, to feel represented by. But you're also the perfect people to change the system based on your experiences and 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 so the more people you the more diverse workforce we have the more force there is to change the system for improvement yes i'm and interested that you mentioned sorry karen oh no I, I was just gonna say i mean if we if we see more diversity in medicine the other thing is that the burden of leading change doesn't then fall on a extremely small mm. minority of people in medicine and i think there is still that danger of tokenism in medicine and there is still that danger of of burdening the ethnic minority or I guess the gender minority and it's just not acceptable. I mean, we need to be driving change but we need to be driving change in, in larger groups. We have enough to deal with in the workplace of trying to progress our careers, dealing with racism, dealing with sexism, dealing with homophobia, I'm sure, for the pride colleagues. Um, on top of trying to lead change in the entire health system. And mm. it's, it's just an impossible work. So it need, it, it, so diversity benefits medicine on, on such a broad scale when, when, you, when you look at all the different components of it. Um, but one thought I've just had hearing you talk about interpreters, because it does, that's an area that frustrates me a lot because accessing an interpreter, particularly in the community, is very difficult. They're often phone services and they're expensive and who pays for that? We don't. We in urgent care don't get funded for that. So it's a burden to the clinic then and it's very expensive over a period of time and it's this long drawn out process of handing phones around. Um, family members do often get utilised. If there is somebody within the clinic who speaks a language that is helpful but as you've alluded to it's not always appropriate and it's not always the best solution and so um it is that is a that is a, an area that um it, it having a more diverse workforce you wouldn't want that to then mean well there you go here's some more interpreters for you um it, it actually needs the money to pay for the inter the professional interpreters to be available um and for the system to pay for that rather than it, it's not a, a case of um solving that problem by having more representation um mm. so i guess that's one area that it could almost backfire if people go oh, we don't need interpreters now because we've got we've got more more um a more diverse workforce um but yeah it's just one example that you've given of, of many that um there are when you start to look but you, you almost have to look you, you, you almost have to be shown and then you have to look to find these things um and it's um it, it, I think the word, as, as we start to wrap up here, that you said um, it, about listening, um, listening to colleagues. So one of the reasons I love podcasts is that it is, is, is a listening thing. I've, I've listened to the radio since I was, or, or stories on tape since, like my earliest memory is listening to stories to go to sleep. So um, listening is such an important um, skill and I think we should all listen to our colleagues and our patients more and maybe talk less. He says, 
yabbering on on a podcast <laughs> um but but that's that's one way that i guess we could all um and and this is why you know you we're, we're talking on an urgent care podcast here but it actually goes to any any medical specialty we we should be listening to um not just our patients because i think it's a well-known fact that the, the history tells you the story of most illnesses that we see in urgent care. The 80% of the work's done just by letting the patient talk and listening to them. But actually listening to our colleagues is probably the take-home I would want people to maybe take from this from an urgent care point of view. Um, so could you, just as, as we wrap up, maybe just how would we approach um, that as a conversation in terms of encouraging um a, a a listening environment how would you want colleagues to to listen to you and 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 um and and for you to feel heard how how what, what tips could you give um people like me to to listen to, to to you um as a work colleague yeah sure i mean of course it's hard to make people listen i mean i can't hold on to someone and shake them and make them listen to me but certainly the people who are in that stage of wanting to listen already um, and I suppose in that contemplative stage of change to kind of action and planning stage of change then certainly these people are open to hearing your perspective and I think these are the people that I most appeal to. Um, partly I suppose the things that you can do to really listen is when you do maybe identify a situation where you notice someone is uncomfortable or your your friend is un friend or colleague who's a person of color um, is uncomfortable in a situation that's maybe reading their body language it's ask, asking what what about that situation made you uncomfortable like would you be able to talk about it a little more so that perhaps next time if this came up i could have your back and tell me how i could support you and in what ways I could support you and to create a more culturally safe environment. And sure, there are less clumsy ways of phrasing that and perhaps less automated ways of phrasing that. Um, but I think that's kind of the thread that we need to go down. And that's probably the way that you could create a more culturally safe and supportive environment um, by, by listening. Yeah. Yep, cultural safety and health equity is a big part of our CPD program since the Medical Council changed their uh, guidelines in the, in the last year and so it's something that that as a college we want to make sure that we're meeting our obligations and and so I think um, uh, my summary uh, for in terms of urgent care doctors listening for this in your CPD um, professional portfolio um, your feed your, your take home from this should be we need to listen to our colleagues any any colleague who is different to you, I think, is the, is the is listen to people outside of your bubble, outside of your your um, your, your sphere, and um, and 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 just listen, and then go from there. And talking of listening, a good way that people can listen to you, Maple, talking to people with interesting stories and um, ideas around what we've been talking about here is to listen to your podcast and we mentioned it at the top um dr nos so how can people find your podcast and listen to it yeah absolutely so my podcast can be found on over 15 different platforms that includes apple podcasts spotify google podcasts overcast Castbox, pretty much any cast that you can think of it's it's on um, and if you just search dr nos 
Um, that stands for not otherwise specified. You should be able to find it on any of these pa- platforms. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook if you want to keep up to date there. So certainly, and anytime if you want to flick me an email for suggestions on who you'd like to hear from, I can be reached at drnos at pm.me as well. Thank you. We'll put links in the show notes and on our, on our uh, website, where, where, wherever anybody accesses our podcast, they can find links to you. And um, if you listen to, to it and find that there's particularly a cultural safety and health equity message behind that, then that's definitely something that you can not only claim in our CPD program, but cultural safety and health equity items are, are um, score double points. They're, they're, they're double value. So for every hour you spend engaging in that topic, you can claim two hours um, in that. But in some of your other conversations, um, you'll be chatting to interesting people with interesting stories and and even a fairly dull Englishman talking about urgent care, you'll, you'll find something along that line as well for those of you who need help maybe getting to sleep in the evenings. But um, <laughs> it, it's, it, I'd encourage everybody to, to check out the podcast because I think it's um, podcasts in general are a great way to learn that you can fill the half hour drive to work. And, and, and as I say, that the key take home here is listening listen to other people, hear their viewpoints, and consider when you're reflecting on it just how it might change your practice and how we can work together to make medicine better for our patients and better for us. And, and hopefully, um, I'm sure your your podcast is doing that, Maple. I, I congratulate you on it. It's fantastic. Um, and wherever your career goes, whether it's into being a physician or whether you consider becoming an urgent care physician instead, which I would highly recommend, um, I wish you the best of luck in everything you do. And whatever you do, I'm sure you'll 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 do it fantastically. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Guy. My thanks again to Maple for talking to our podcast. Links to her podcast are in the show notes. If you have any comments or questions relating to our conversation, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz. Now we'll be back again next week with another podcast. I look forward to seeing you all then. But for now, thanks for listening.